Hello and welcome to the pod. Wow, it's been a while since the last episode was released, last August, and this one has been waiting in the wings for quite some time. Ashley and I actually recorded this episode way back in February of last year, and it was an 80-minute recording session. We covered a whole lot of ground around our chosen topic, which was fat phobia in the maternity system, and also VBAC or vaginal birth after cesarean. And it went a whole lot of different directions, covered a lot of ground, particularly Ashley's own birth stories. And you know what? Tech did us a number and we have ended up with a much shorter episode than was initially intended. So with that in mind, I would love for you to consider this episode more of a primer to the topic rather than a thorough, intensive deep dive. There are a couple of great books that I would recommend you take a look at if you're interested in some of the research around these topics. So one is Birth After Caesarean by Hazel Keedle, and it was released in 2022. And actually, since we recorded this episode together, Ashley and I, there has been another book called Plus Size Pregnancy released by Dr. Sarah Wickham, who is a UK-based researcher and academic, and she has compiled a whole lot of the evidence that is available um, in relation to plus-size pregnancy. It's a really wonderful, easy-to-read book. She's also been interviewed on a number of podcasts regarding this uh, topic. Um, the one that I would recommend having a listen to is from September of 2023 called Plus-Size Pregnancy, an interview with Dr. Sarah Wickham, and that's on the Midwives Cauldron podcast. If you've been around here for a while, you'll know that I'm really passionate about women and birthing people having the opportunity to make autonomous decisions in relation to their pregnancy, care and birth. Ashley speaks in this episode primarily about her third birth, which was a free birth, which means an unattended birth at home or in a location other than a hospital or birth centre. And unattended doesn't mean that she was alone. It just means that there was no medical practitioner present. I invited Ashley on to speak to her experience as I think a lot of people don't know that that option is available to them. Not everyone is going to choose free birth. Not everyone is going to choose home birth, which is birth at home with a midwife. Not everybody is going to choose hospital birth or plan a cesarean. But all of these are valid choices. If having listened to Ashley's stories, you would like to hear more from other plus-size women who have gone down different pathways, you might like to skip back to season five of this podcast and have a listen to episode six with Steph O'Brien and also episode two with Kate Elizabeth and they each chose a cesarean and home birth respectively. Without further ado, let's begin the episode. Hello and welcome to this new episode of the Anna Asks podcast. I am your host, obviously, Anna Cusack, and today I'm speaking with Ashley Winning. Ashley is somebody who I came across through the Newborn Mothers Postpartum Doula Training Collective and course. She is somebody who has become, over the years, a stronger and stronger advocate in the realm of birth. Ashley, welcome. Hi, Anna. Thanks. I'm really keen to have this chat with you. It's something that I get asked about quite a bit. We're going to be covering fat phobia in maternity systems. Uh, But before we jump into that, would you mind just giving people a bit of 
and background to you, your passion, your line of work? I'm in Logan in Queensland and I'm a mum of three. I've got three little girls. I basically am here because of my journey. So I had a pretty rough start to motherhood. There was so much direction and so much authority in the maternity space I feel that I often let other people tell me what to do there's so many noises and so many voices and I ended up having c-sections with my first two babies against you know not really needed at all um, pretty much I think due to my uh, size and I started working in the postpartum space in 2017 and I did the newborn mothers course and then I did the mastermind which is the extra training and I wanted to show up for women. I wanted women to hear other stories and I wanted to know that the information that you get from the system is quite often incorrect, misleading, outdated, not evidence-based. And I knew I wasn't ready to show up in the birth space because I had trauma of my own. I hadn't had a vaginal birth yet and I didn't want to show up from a space of trauma. So I started off with the postpartum. I ended up having my vaginal birth at home and healing through that process I mean I didn't it took us three or four years of healing before I had my baby and it's just an enormous journey that I've been on my oldest is eight now and I feel like this has just been a real growth time for me as a mother as a person tell us about your podcast because it's quite a niche area it is it's very niche and I didn't I actually started the podcast when I was pregnant with my third baby and it was because there were VBAC podcasts out there, but there was no VBAC home birth podcasts out there. And so listening to VBAC stories was really empowering for me to begin with and powerful, but there was nobody telling home birth stories. And I felt really like a fish out of water. There was nobody representing somebody like me. I had two cesareans. I had a special scar. I was overweight. I birthed big babies. I'd had GD. There was so many things that were special about me that I kept saying, well, you know, it's all right for her. She's only had one C-section. It's all right for her. She's in the hospital. And so I really started it for myself. Hearing other women's stories really gave me the, the knowledge, the inspiration. And then I got to interview experts on my podcast, like Dr. Rachel Reed, you know, I got courage back then to be like, would you please come on my podcast? <laughs> and Dr. Sarah Buckley. And I got to pick their brains on topics that were relevant to me free birthing and physiological and instinctive birth and it really gave me the power to go okay this is the evidence this is what they're saying and it makes logical sense for me so it was just that my podcast is called the VBAC Home Birth Stories podcast and I share you know a collection of women's stories expert stories and my own wisdom on there as well. Awesome so if they sound like topics that you want to hear more about Jump across to Ashley's podcast once this episode is finished. Get your ears around that. I have learned a lot. I've not had a cesarean before, but I have learned a lot from listening to your podcast and thinking how, how I can best support friends preparing for VBAC home birth. And it, it does surprise me as well that these stories weren't very common. It's only, it's not like your podcast has been going for decades. You know, your, your eldest is only eight. And it surprises me because the success rates of VBAC at home are so much higher than in the hospital. Mm. So it surprises me that those stories haven't really been consolidated with that evidence until now. And I'm, I'm really pleased that you're doing, doing that work. And I think one of the reasons that it's, it is more successful at home is 
you can choose the free birthing route as you did, although we might get to that point where we discuss that perhaps it wasn't your, was or wasn't your first choice. One of the other reasons that people can choose to birth at home is because it helps to skip some of the pressures relating to size discrimination or also known as fat phobia within mm. the maternity care systems if you're choosing to engage a private midwife who actually believes in birth <laughs> and the birth yeah. processes. So yeah. VBAC and size discrimination. And then there's obviously other levels of, of intersection that may come into that as well. If you're an mm. older mother, uh, if mm -hmm. you have a complex medical history, if you are of certain uh, ethnic or racial backgrounds that may be treated differently. And yes. that generally and is a euphemism for worse in the hospital yeah. system. Yeah. Yeah. And and young mums too, they get treated terribly. Yeah, and it all plays back into this really narrow definition of what good or normal motherhood is. And if you deviate from that even slightly, then you're put into one box. And mm. that box is a high-risk box or a box mm. that is not capable of making decisions for yourself. Mm -hmm. So so I'm going to ask you about uh, size discrimination and fat phobia within the maternity system, how that, mm. how that shows up uh, a, on a broader level. But I'd really love to hear from you. You've had three babies mm. under quite different circumstances. Two very big stories and a very traumatic second story. What's the lead in then to go like, actually, no, I, I want to know about physiologic birth. I reckon mm. I can do this. I was learning stuff about postpartum, but I was supporting women who were pregnant as well. So they would join me in an online program through pregnancy. And I was finding that while they were doing things like hypnobirthing and that, they still, they would get themselves to the end of their their pregnancy and they would have the bait and switch and they would be left alone. And so I was, I wanted to make sense of what was happening in my situation, but I was still working with women in, in, in a capacity, supporting them and being privy to their conversations. I just always wanted to know, like, I always want to understand what's happened. I, I love hearing about people's past because it helps me understand who they are now and why they are the way they are. And so I had to understand what had happened. I did a few birth debriefs. I did one with an obstetrician that was just horrible. And I did a few with some private midwives. And I think the catalyst for me was I went to um, a few birth meetups and caught up with some doulas and I started reading more books. And I, I just went down the rabbit hole of all of these resources and I feel like they gave me hope and I started hearing other women's stories and then I found a special scars group and then I heard that women were having home births and free births after that and so then I was listening to the free birth society podcast and there were so many things that I was kind of doing that I was just absorbing all of this information and I met Dr Sarah Buckley in person and heard her speak and I heard her talk about the hormones and I thought she basically labelled all the births and the worst births you could have I'd had. I sat there with little tears coming out of my eyes, but it gave me hope because I realised that the reason it ended like that was because all these things happened to me, all the, these things were done to me. So I, you know, was able to trace back and realise that, you know, if, if this hadn't happened, that probably wouldn't have happened. And then I got stuck into Rachel Reed stuff and I really trusted those women because they're educated and they've been in this space for a long time. And so it made a lot of sense to me based on my personal experiences. 
I decided I was going to have a home birth, but I couldn't find a home birth midwife that was willing to support me. In fact, I found that a lot of midwives try to talk me out of my decision to have a free birth and that they were really fearful. And I found that a lot of doulas at the time were not supportive of free birth, or if they were, they were supportive of other women to have free births, but they were not supportive of me. And I think that was due to my size. You know, I even had one say it's I just couldn't risk losing my house in you know because you're you could be really risky and tried talking me into having a hospital birth so she could support me which I just in my heart was just you're not listening to me you're not standing with me you know I can't go back into hospital because I can't make the same mistake I can't go the same path because they don't treat me like a human in a in a way they won't see past my body and I was told by a midwife that if I went into hospital, they'd be petrified of me. And I already knew that they were petrified of me, you know, with one cesarean scar, let alone a special scar and them believing that like, you know, you can never labor again. And this was a bad thing as if it was my body that had uh, malfunctioned, but that was their perception. And I just didn't believe that to be true. How can you go back into a culture when your values are polar opposite? Yeah, and I think you raise a really good point there that the way that you are treated is based in practitioner fear. Mm. And when we drill down into what that fear is based on, a lot of the time it's not much. So, you know, there's a very big difference between hearing a woman who is obese has double or triple the chance of X, Y, Z. But when that original chance is only 1% or 2%, that triple might be three to six percent and it's still a 94 plus percent chance that it's not going to be an issue for you the failure to to look past the bias to look to what the evidence is let alone the fact that they're not respecting you as an autonomous decision-making person is kind of at the root of of a lot of the fat phobic treatment that we see within maternity care does that sound right to you this is this is my interpretation of it is that they do not see women my size spontaneously birthing or having a physiological birth because they put so many interventions and so many blocks in our way that they don't treat us like a low-risk woman so I've seen it on tv where a bigger woman who's already had a baby before they're too busy like let's put this instrument on you and let's see what this belly band will do but we can't get a trace reading because you're bigger but I'm looking at the machine and the woman's screaming I'm having this baby and they're like no you're not and then a baby's head pops out and it's like if you just listen to the woman she told you her history, like she burst quickly, but it's just that they're so afraid. And when I look into bigger bodies, it's more dangerous for me to go into surgery. So what they're trying to avoid is if I have to have emergency surgery, they know that they have to have an experienced team to feel confident, to cut through the extra layers of fat. That makes logical sense for me. You do need someone who's experienced and who feels comfortable. And I did ask a junior doctor and she said, I wouldn't be comfortable doing it on my own. And so that makes sense, right? But what is the chance of a woman my size actually needing to have an emergency C-section? In the system, there's a very high chance because they're going to induce you, they're going to force you on your back, they're going to want to monitor you, they're going to want to, you know, give you an epidural. 
all of these put you at higher risk of having a cesarean and forcing you into that, you know, that path. But if they allowed you like a low risk woman to get in the bathing, birthing suite, the bath, they put the candles on. I'm, I'm thinking of the birthing centers here where, you know, they're massaging your back in the birthing center and they're like singing, you know, kumba music. It's like amazing. They would never let a bigger woman in there. And meanwhile, bigger women can birth beautifully, but we're just seen as incompetent and unable to because they put so many restrictions on us because they're so afraid that the it's probably like 5% of women will end up or maybe 10% of women generally. But I just think that they just don't allow these women so they never see it. So if it happens, it's like, whoa, what has, how did your body do that? How did you manage that? And it's like, well, <laughs> I just was never allowed to before. I think as well, when you are a larger person, they not only don't believe that you can make safe decisions, they, they not only don't see it, but there is also a perception that you are a danger to your baby and that it's safest for them to take over and get that baby out ASAP. There's all the stigma in healthcare, and I, I used to work in healthcare, I know about this, mm. of mm. how we are trained through our theoretical training, our placements, all of those things to view through the lens of risk. And this is laid on top of sort of the cultural biases about, you know, even the ways that our systems still rely on the BMI as cutoff points, which is something mm. that was, up in the late 1700s looking at white male soldiers and how irrelevant those cutoff points can be I mean I don't personally I've never thought about it from that point of view I just always thought that it was a matter of they see us as lazy and fat and incapable and that we don't have the stamina and so I find that quite offensive because I consider myself to be quite a strong and determined person and having extra fat on my body doesn't mean that I'm a weaker or lesser person than somebody who's an average size. It also doesn't mean that I'm less healthy, if not more healthy than someone of average size. My fat does not determine how healthy I am. I've had all my tests done and I have no high cholesterol, no heart problems. In fact, when I was in hospital, they did a full body scan on my body where they did ultrasounds on my heart and all this sort of stuff over the top sort of stuff, but everything came back fine. And then I do a routinely GP appointment where I do my diabetes and cholesterol and everything's perfectly fine for me. And so it's quite offensive that they treat you as if you're a catastrophe waiting to happen when there's other people who are average size who are much less healthy than me, far less healthy than I am. They're just deeming them more capable because they're not fat essentially they might not even have a fitness level it's just that they're in a you know average size body that it's just deemed and I understand everyone has judgments and I get it but I think that we have a responsibility to understand our bias and our discrimination like our judgments about other people and give people a chance treat them on an individual level understand like we have these stories, we have these judgments, we have, and then we have the risk. And I find this with the doctors, they understand that there's risk, but they don't understand why there's risk. Mm. And so when you can start to unpack the reason why you're at high risk of having a cesarean, for me, it's not because 
it's because I was fat, right? But it's not because my fat body was more incapable or anything. I don't believe, I don't think there's any evidence that shows that actually. I've yet to find a doctor who can show me any evidence. I mean, they throw a few crazy theories around, but they can't show me any, any evidence for it. So the only thing that they're worried about is, you know, when you get to surgery, if you go in and it's not a, a scheduled one that they have to call people in. So it does put you at higher risk because you do need a, a team to be there, you know, that knows what they're doing. And, and if you do have to go under, it is riskier for a bigger person to go under. Which um, should, but it is the whole but point, it is, they're giving you the maximum care possible to make sure that you don't need surgery. Exactly. Exactly. So it's counter, I would say it's safer for me to have a vaginal birth. And so it's really the thing that I find with the healthcare system is that they can't, they can't see past what they're being taught or what's being handed to them, kind of look at it, I don't know, in a way where you're kind of pulling all the pieces together and understanding it. And then they've got on their backs what they're going to get in trouble from. So one of the doctors said to me, I said, I'll sign all the waivers. He said, look, your signature's not worth the paper it's written on. So a piece of paper's worth like two cents. So he's basically saying it doesn't matter because my insurance will not get me in trouble if I cut you open. But if there's a problem when you have a vaginal birth, even though you've waived all your rights, I'm going to get, I'm going to end up in Shit's Creek, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're bound by their regulatory body, by their mm. insurance, their employer, and yeah. the of all of those organizations is to not get sued yeah and I don't blame them because you know are they going to put their lives on the you know their livelihood their careers on the risk for not knowing me not they don't have a connection with me they haven't taken the time to get to know me on a human level and then at the same time they're running ragged working all these hours and that sort of thing and then at the same time, the other side of me is like, well, you should do better. You should be better. We should have deeper conversations yeah. and try to make a try to make a stand. So that's kind of where I am in the two sides of it all. Yeah, we need to get our risk stratification right for a start because when you look at it, I'll link the study in the show notes, but there was some research that was looking at the likelihood of developing complications through a pregnancy. So rather than projecting you are at higher risk of blah, 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 what was the actual risk that was recorded by the end of the pregnancy? Mm. And the statistic was for somebody who was considered in an, you know, the wording, the normal weight range or the average weight mm. range, the likelihood of having an uncomplicated pregnancy was, I think, around 72%, 72 to 76%. And if you were somebody who was overweight, obese, the likelihood of having no complications through your pregnancy was still up around the 60% mark. Mm. So yes, there is a slightly increased risk, but not to the point of pushing you in all those directions that, <laughs> that you were just saying. It's not like, oh, these are your risk factors. So it's 100% that these things are going to happen to you. And also, I want to say that you know it's one thing to group people together and say, well, you're of this category just because you're in that category doesn't mean that you're not at 100% health, for example. I think it's really good to have a starting base and go, okay, when we look at a general population, this is where you are. But let's look at you. Oh, okay, well, you are a bigger person, but you go to the gym, you eat really nourishing, healthy foods, and you have no cholesterol problems, no heart problems, no blah, blah, blah. It's really that. I think it's good to have a starting base. I really do like evidence and stats for a starting base. 
it's the inability to look past the numbers and then individualize it. Yeah. Mm. What I'd like you to discuss next is what your pregnancy and eventual outcomes were like. Because it sounds like you researched or you tried to get in touch with private practicing home birth midwives, doulas, all these sorts of things, and people mm. just take you on. So how did your pregnancy and birth play out for your third baby where you really extricated yourself from that discriminatory system? Yeah, so it was through the COVID time. So I found it really challenging to get antenatal support. So I really wanted to have a home birth midwife because I love the idea of a midwife coming to my home with a little basket, the little, you know, the heartbeat monitor (laughs) and the little blanket and all the pictures that you see on the internet. I thought it'd be so nice as somebody who had HD and was very sick until 20 weeks with all of my babies, I didn't want to have to travel and I had younger children. So I I really love the idea of someone coming and nourishing me and I couldn't find a supportive midwife who would do that. There was a local lady close to me and she had been in touch with another midwife and she had been in touch with the insurance and they said, we don't recommend it. And so she was too afraid to support me. It wasn't that she wasn't supportive of me. Again, it was the insurance. And then I called a few other places and they were, you know, I think you should get oxygen and I think you should do this. And they were really fearful of my choice to free birth, even though, Uh, I had a friend who free birthed and they were very supportive of her. There was one midwife who was willing to support me, but I had to travel all the way to the north side and I just, it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't what I pictured. It was COVID time. So I was able to get things done over the phone with a random GP who didn't ask any questions. And I just had the scans that I wanted done and I had the blood tests that I wanted done. And I just pick and choose what I wanted to do. So I wanted to keep an eye on my iron and, you know, urine levels and all that sort of thing. I never had any blood pressure readings. I've never had any blood pressure problems throughout my pregnancies or any, any time anyway. So I wasn't worried about that. I felt really confident because I don't really do anything else. It's just blood pressure and those tests. And I had all the tests. It's just, I wasn't seeing anybody. Yeah. That's pretty much how I went. And I just believed in physiological instinctive birth. I surrendered a lot to the experience and just had to really trust that this was the right decision and this was the safest for me and my baby. I had to surrender to the outcome because I didn't have any control. I could only really set myself up for the best outcome. I live, you know, five to 10 minutes away from the hospital. So I felt very confident that if I needed something, I could get to the hospital quite quickly through ambulance or my own, you know, my husband driving us. And so I felt really confident and comfortable with that. And I knew the risks of what could happen through birth. And I just trusted and believed that my body would be able to birth my baby without any catastrophic things happening. And if there were certain things that I could handle them or identify some of those things or going to hospital if I needed to. So I ended up, I ended up having my spontaneous birth at home and it was the most calming wonderful experience and I did end up my doula did interrupt the last part of my birth so as the head emerged from the birthing canal like as my baby's head emerged uh, she did you know kind of say don't touch the baby to my husband and that really got my adrenaline up so I did notice that there was a change from my instinctive birthing undisturbed birth it was so calm and peaceful to 
adrenaline spike and then my contractions actually stopped. So my baby's shoulders were out, but her belly was still in there and I had to pretty much purple push to get her out. And that means I was pushing so hard. I think that caused some problems for for afterwards. So baby was born. She was perfectly, I believe she was perfectly fine, but she came on my chest and then my jeweler said to me, I think her late, her breathing's a bit laboured. I would recommend you call an ambulance. And I'd pretty much outsourced that part of the birth to my jeweler because I was afraid of postpartum hemorrhage. Um, it was something that I wasn't familiar with and I wasn't sure how I would gauge it. And I knew that was probably one of the most dangerous things for a woman giving birth. And so I said, yep, yeah, sure, call an ambulance. The ambulance is there within a couple of minutes. And then she recommended that we cut the cord, hold the baby up to give to my husband so he, the ambulance could have a look at her. And she just started screaming at the top of her lungs and she was perfectly fine. But during that time, it was actually quite worrying because I was again worried I didn't get that you know calmness and oh I get to meet my juicy beautiful baby it was just you know worry worry and so I understand at that point you know why I did end up having a retained placenta and so then it was the baby was perfectly fine but my doula was like oh there's a lot of blood in the pool I think we should you know get you up and see if the placenta's come out and that sort of thing so long story short, I ended up having a retained placenta that I went to hospital to have removed. They estimated that I lost about 3.1 litres of blood again, but I'd been through the experience before and this was on my terms. And, you know, I have spoken to some of the leaders in the area and asked them and they think that it was because my birth was disturbed at the end. But there's no way of knowing that if that mm. was the case or if I was always going to have that experience. And and I just had to, I promised myself, no matter what would happen, that I would be kind and gentle and loving to myself. So there was a little bit of, I would say there was a tiny bit of trauma that there was definitely when I was in the hospital, I felt like a fish out of water and I felt like I'd done the wrong thing because my baby did go to special care. They were whispering about me in the hallways and rando people would come up, midwives and that. I heard about your story and blah, 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 blah. It was just a really surreal experience because I was like the unicorn in the hospital. But after that and after the few months of it all settling down and everything, my baby was perfectly fine. So she went into special care, but they said it was just a precaution because they pretty much do that because I had no prenatal care, they deem it, because I wasn't going to the hospital. And so they pretty That's much put most home birth babies in the hospital. It's exactly the same. Like they're not looking at the baby that's in front of them. They're looking at your record. No, I didn't, I, I didn't, my husband gave authority. So, and I would, I would have had a fear anyways, because I'd never taken that path before. I felt that the obstetrician was really wonderful and they really supported me knowing where the space that I'd come from. But then I went in the basically special care and I saw that they quite often took control and it was a real fight to kind of get my baby and all this sort of stuff. After a couple of days, I did have a debrief with, a, um, with one of the paediatricians and she said to me, look, we gave her antibiotics as a precaution. We gave her this because of precaution. We did this because of precaution. And so, again, I could see that precautionary care. Mm. And I, like, you know, my husband had given informed consent, but I didn't know until like a year later that he had given the informed consent. So as long as you know what you're doing and you know what to expect, I try to let women know if you, if you do transfer that they will try to get that baby in special care. 
as long as you know your rights and what you can advocate for, you know, baby doesn't have to leave you at all. So we could have advocated for that if we knew. And it was just a really that kind of situation. But it was the most magical birthing experience. It was so surreal. It was peaceful. It was calm. I had a posterior baby again. So my waters broke. And then I had maybe four hours of intense pain. I think that's where my cervix opened because I'm a, I, I um, dilate really quickly. And then because I had a high baby that was in the wrong position or, you know, perfect position, um, but obviously it, it took a lot longer for her to come down. And so my body spent the whole time just pushing, rotating, and it would take big breaks in between as well. So if I'd had a midwife at home, who wasn't trained in posterior birth and understood physiological posterior, that could have been a sign for them that I might be rupturing. You know, that's something that they look at if there's erratic labour signs. Looking at everything in the hospital system, no wonder they were afraid because they're looking at this is not normal. You know, I had early pushing in the hospital as well and, you know, they say, you know, should never push over two hours. I was pushing in that home birth for about 10 hours. And when I say pushing, it was like every third or fourth contraction, but that's because the baby was getting pushed down. It wasn't, I was pushing the baby out. It was, I'm pushing, my body took over, pushing the baby down and turning the baby. And then I would have a 10 minute break and it was relaxing and calm. And then I would have a normal contraction. And then a few contractions later, I'd be grunting on my knees and it felt really good and powerful. And my body knew what to do. It was, you can have a rest now because this is hard work and have a relax and have a little drink. And then we're going to do another, you know, big push. And I just think how amazing is that? It would never be allowed in hospital. It would, they would be freaking out. I felt that too about my recent birth where baby, I felt her, she did gradually, very gradually, but she did a full 360 turn and Mm. therefore there were patches where it was really, really erratic. They'd be three minutes apart and then they'd be 10 minutes apart and it just went back and, yeah, my midwife sort of had the discussion like what would they be doing to you if, if you're in the hospital and, yeah, I was so grateful to be at home. So thank you, Ashley, for sharing very much listeners feel free to go across to Ashley's podcast find the the things that stick out for you and where can we get a hold of you to have your support yeah so I support women who are home birthing or free birthing home birthing with or without a team and I support them in pregnancy through their mindset and making sure they've got the right support team making sure they've got everything set up but it's mostly mindset and learning about physiological birth and instinctive birth and I do work with a lot of women who are V-backing and I do work with women who are having a vaginal birth for the third time as well. You interviewed one of my clients actually, and she just had a free birth herself. And it's just amazing working in this space. And then I've got the knowledge, of course, you know, in the postpartum as well to cross over because as you know, Anna, that is such an important space to work in as well, because women just are not supported enough in that space either. So they can find me on Instagram at Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-Y-L, winning, W-I-N-N-I-N-G. And, you know, send me a DM if you want to have a chat or, you know, to get in contact. Thank you so much for your time, Ashley. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. 
To find me online, head to www.annacusack.com.au or on Instagram at Postpartum. I have a range of individual services, birth mapping, birth debriefing, postpartum planning and parent support, as well as a brand shiny new online membership coming up and my book too. Plenty of things going on. Until next time, see you later.